Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 96. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Giles Hash. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we mash it all up, wad it into a ball, place it into a sacred circle and perform some kind of voodoo and turn it into literary, <laughs> literary gold. gold. <laughs> I can see us just jumping around, dancing in the fire, like, and poof, literary gold. That's the way That's the way literary alchemy works on the round table. <laughs> Nicely done, Giles. Giles Hash, friends, uh, one of the co-hosts of the Mighty Beyond the Trope podcast, joining me once again as co-host uh, for an episode of the round table. Dude, we had a blast on the 20 minutes with. There was some serious mojo being dropped in the 20 minutes with. I can't wait to brainstorm a story with you, bud. Thanks for coming back. I'm super excited to be here. Indeed. <laughs> Let's get our guest host back in the big comfy virtual chair here at the round table. Dear friends, fresh from a 20 minutes with of, of rare and exquisite quality, please welcome back to the big chair here at the round table, Michael R. Underwood. Michael, you have been on the show several times. Each time it has been a genuine delight. And, you know, having you on to brainstorm a story is is like warm cookies on a, on a, on a chilly day, man. Thank you so much for coming back and, and, and brainstorming with us today. Well, considering how much I love cookies, that's uh, a very awesome compliment. Thank you so much. <laughs> and there is, there is nothing quite like the round table. And I say this as somebody who has been on and participated in many a podcast. So thank you for what you do here. Uh, you're a gentleman, sir. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and let's talk about actually what you do for a second, because, you know, it's, it's been fabulous because we have crossed paths several times at Balticon, at Confusion. I have no doubt there'll be more opportunities for you and I and others, of course, to cross paths. But I know that there's things. I know every time we sit down and talk, there's an idea percolating in your brain, a project on the horizon. So, so take a few minutes if you would, and share with our listeners what's coming up in the world of Michael R. Underwood. Sure. So the main series I'm working on right now is Genrenauts, which is a about a group who travel between dimensions to worlds based on story genres to find and fix broken stories. So it's a little bit like Leverage meets Jasper Ford um, or kind of narrative heists. And the series started with the shootout solution in November. And we'll continue with The Absconded Ambassador, February 23rd. And just earlier today, um, Irene Gallo, the art director, um, revealed the cover for There Will Always Be a Max, which is a genre not short story that Tor.com is publishing for free on their website, uh, probably in March. But uh, it has yet to be fully scheduled. That's, and and that, we've seen the artwork. That is drop-dead gorgeous. Yeah, I was walking down the stairs as the picture came up, and I, I almost fell down the stairs. So. <laughs> The first dear, dear casualty reader, I, of art. <laughs> right? I, I, I contained myself and then kind of went to my GIF library so I could post the shiny eyes that was my reaction. <laughs> well, and friends, I, I don't know if if you if you don't follow Mike Underwood on Twitter and on the Facebooks, you really ought because it does brighten your feed. But you should know that when Mad Max Fury Road came out, uh, uh, that became a very pivotal moment 
for Master Underwood. He had glommed onto that film for so many reasons in, in so many ways that to have the Max be in his genre not series, you you got to make this scene. you got to read this story. It's going to be fabulous. March, you say? Uh, that is looking pretty likely, but um, stay tuned for final scheduling. Um, okay. They Usually they do the cover reveal and then they, they kind of set the schedule on the website. Awesome. Very cool. Well, that's that's definitely on everybody's radar. What else you got? Um, my current kind of back burner project beyond genre knots is a pew pew jump kaboom <laughs> kind of space opera, you know, very action and character driven. And that one I'm developing and then we'll be sending out. And that's very exciting. Uh, more on it when uh, when I hear back and then uh, farther cool. on the back burners, because I have like I have this one of like the nine set range it's just like all sorts of stuff going on um <laughs> i'm also noodling away at some comics pitches Ooh, very and, cool yeah um it's really fun it's a very different form requires uh different types types of storytelling skills in the foreground versus the background in another couple couple years i'll hopefully actually understand it and then i can come back and talk about it um <laughs> excellent and then i'll be at a lot of cons actually this year um the next few for me are uh, C2E2 in Chicago, Emerald City in Seattle, and then Balticon, which I'm hoping you're coming to, Dave. Oh, absolutely. I'll be there. I will so be there. Yes, it's going to be pretty gigantic with George R.R. Martin as the guest of honor. Absolutely. Absolutely. A new venue downtown. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of reasons to make the Balticon scene this year. Definitely. Yep. It is the place to be if you want to hang out with podcasters in the uh, in the specfic universe. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. You, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a celebrity podcaster in the face with the dead cat. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Michael, I will make sure all of that gets into the liner notes. Giles, actually, did you write down uh, a pew pew jump kaboom as the new the new genre format? I did not, but I think I might want to read that genre. I'm, I'm ready. To, I'm ready to make that my new thing, my new groove. Pew pew jump kaboom! It even scans, <laughs> so that's nice. That's like I got an ambic pentameter working for it. Giles, share with our friends the essence, the 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 core, the heart of the Beyond the Trope podcast, if you would be so kind to enlighten the poor benighted souls who, for some reason, haven't heard of this podcast, and then do please wax rhapsodic on any other awesomeness you have going on in your life right now. Well, Beyond the Trope is a podcast that my uh, co-hosts, Michelle Graham and Emily Singer, and I got together and started because we got tired of a lot of literary snobs saying that there's no such thing as art in genre fiction. And so we try not to trash anybody else's art or craft because... A lot of great literary artists or literary writers are doing great things, and we don't want to mock them or make fun of them or any of that horrible stuff. But uh, we also wanted to point out the cool artsy things that are going on in genre fiction. But then over the last two years, in fact, this February, uh, two weeks, we're celebrating our two-year anniversary. Whoa, congratulations, dude. That's an achievement. Yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, we, over the last two years, we've kind of morphed into an all-around podcast for nerds. So we talk about tropey, nerdy things, <laughs> uh, including comics and movies. We actually have an episode on Star Wars coming out in two weeks. What a show. Finally talking about the movie. I'm stunned. Um, I'm stunned, really. Yeah, it's it's all <laughs> kinds of fun. Just a, a great nerdy podcast, just focusing on some really cool nerdy things. And overall. where can people just, find this thing, this this gem of podcasting goodness on the web? On iTunes and Stitcher through beyondthetrope.com. That's our website, beyondthetrope.com. There are links to all of our feeds, and we have a blog, and we have some book reviews that go up on the blog regularly, some interviews, and all that fun stuff. 
Very cool. Friends, make a note of that. Don't go now because you're listening to us now, but uh, but definitely check out the Beyond the Trope podcast. Uh, it's good times, good geekery, and good people. So, uh, and what else do you got going on, Giles? I know, I know the, the the podcast started as you know you're a writer and you've been on the show before as a guest writer. Uh, uh, what what writerly fun do you have coming up in your world? Well, as a podcast, all four of us, including my wife, who does behind the scenes producing stuff, we're going to AnomalyCon, which is a steampunk convention here in Denver, and. Part of that is going to involve interviewing uh, Chuck Wendig about some Star Wars stuff, which wow. is really cool. He's going to be the guest of honor. And I'm teaching my very first solo workshop on podcasting the artist's platform. Oh, wow. Dude, that's awesome. Very cool. You are, And you are uniquely qualified to deliver that workshop. Well done, sir. Thank you. That's awesome. I work hard for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're also planning on going to Denver Comic Con. We're working to figure that out. And then all four of us are going to be making the drive from Denver out to Kansas City for Worldcon. Dude, awesome. We will definitely embrace there. Michael, are you going to be making the Worldcon scene this year? I am. I'm hoping to do an Angry Robot booth there. It's usually one of our very best selling cons um, when I'm there for my doing my day job thing. So uh, I'll hope to see you all there. Outstanding. Giles, we should totally double team Michael and just do a double roundtable beyond the trope interview at the same time <laughs> at the Angry Robot Hope- booth. Hopefully we can make that happen and I'll, I'll bring some great Colorado whiskey. Oh, of course you will. The, the What is it? The McAllen 12, 14? What was that? I'll bring some Stranahan's. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you 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 speak the Scots language, sir. Very good, very good. All right, Giles, I will make sure that gets into the liner notes. I'll, I'll make sure Mike's goodness gets into the liner notes, so that all of our friends can do make with the clicky click and check out the coolness that both of you guys are into. Uh, but for right now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd, I'd like to catch our breath, collect ourselves, uh, take a pause, give some podcast airtime to a, another fabulous podcast or a Kickstarter or an ebook. Who knows? There's so much awesomeness going on in the world. We'll showcase that. And when we come back, Mike, Giles, I would love to brainstorm a story with you guys. What do you say? I Let's think that's it. something we have to do. I think you're right. I absolutely think Michael's down with it. Giles is down with it. Friends, I hope you're down with it. Don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. What are you doing in the kitchen? Writing a short story. With a meat mallet? Well, yeah. My characters are giving me trouble. Well, then what about the cheese grater? I have to make sure my plot points are evenly spread to the whole story, don't I? Oh, my action scene is done. Wow, you got it perfectly browned. 350 degrees for 12 minutes. Ah, perfect. The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Short and flash fiction, author interviews, book reviews, and more. Come visit the Disaster Kitchen and cook up a story. Something's burning. My dialogue! (sighs) Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the business at hand. The reason you're here, the reason that we're here. The story brainstorm. And that awesomeness does not occur without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding forward to the uncomfortable writer's chair to set the table for our brainstorming feast. And dear friends, our guest writer for this episode was born in Washington State, 
lived on a hospital ship in West Africa for three years and started writing fantasy novels to blow off steam. Uh, he is the host of the Creative Minds podcast. He's best known as the creator of the world's first real-time fantasy blog story titled Into the Nanton, The Record of My Exile. And friends, do mark your calendars because he'll be launching a Kickstarter for Into the Nanton on March 4th, 2016. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table, Master Jay Swanson. Jay? Dude, we met each other at Worldcon this year. Uh, we crossed paths once again at Confusion, which was fabulous, along with Master Underwood. Uh, uh, it's it's a delight and a wonder to have you on the show. And I know that no matter how how cool, hip, and how many times you do this, there's always a bit of trepidation for putting your baby up for public scrutiny. So so hats off and respect for your bold courage, sir. Thanks for thanks for stepping up. Absolutely. I'm here to let you hack this baby in two, and then hopefully two of us get to walk away with babies. Well, uh, <laughs> sorry, that, maybe, that might have been a little bit too Solomon-esque. That, that might have been a bit biblical, yeah. you know. I was just, I'm thinking I've got to come into this thing ready just to watch it die. <laughs> it is not going, we have never killed a story on the round table, trust me. It's magic. I don't know how it works, but it does work. So real quick, Jay, give our listeners just the elevator pitch for Into the Nanton. What's that bad boy all about? Into the Nanton is the world's first real-time fantasy blog. Uh, it's the journal of a man who's been exiled into the world's most hostile jungle in search of a man that he hates, who was exiled there 20 years before him. And as he got closer to the jungle, he started writing in his journal to exonerate his name, to tell his story. And each entry that he writes posts on the website in real time, often with illustrations. So if he writes in the evening, it posts that evening. If he writes the next morning, it posts that morning. If he's running for his life, you don't hear from him for a couple of days. <laughs> so you can follow along day by day with him as he goes through his adventures. There's a, even a Twitter account to see what his thoughts are. And uh, we're coming up to the end of our second season or our second journal uh, here in the next couple of months. Outstanding. And what's the Kickstarter in March for? The Kickstarter in March is to help fund the artwork and the podcast. And if we get really lucky, I might actually even make some money off of it in the end, too. But it's to keep <laughs> keep a third journal uh, going next year, which will launch in September. Outstanding. And friends, if you have not seen the artwork or read the experienced the story of Into the Nanton, uh, uh, do make that scene. Where can they find that on the web, Jay? Into the Nanton.com. Uh, and Nanton is spelled N-A-N-T-E-N. Awesome. Very cool. It is an awesome story. It is beautifully rendered. Uh, uh, and as you say, it's a real-time experience. But there's another story that we want to focus on. There's a story that you're clutched in, in, your, in your sweaty hands right now. That's the story we want to focus on. So Absolutely. you know how this works, Jay. We give you five to eight minutes. Uh, uh, tell us the, the title, the genre, the, the target audience. Uh, uh, introduces to the basic themes of the story, introduces to the world, the characters. Give us the basic tent poles of the story itself, and we will dive in and and have a brainstorm like has never been seen before. So I'm I'm done talking, sir. I'm getting out of the way. The mic is all yours. Fantastic. The title and genre. My story is the prologue to a fantasy trilogy. It'll be a novel or a novella, depending on how this conversation goes. The working title is The Black Knight's Apprentice. The hook line, too poor to afford proper training, an orphan seeks apprenticeship under a retired knight in the mountains whose legendary status is marred by growing rumors of senility. 
The theme of the story is learning to accept oneself when the world at large is poised for rejection. The world. The story takes place in an alternate world in a period akin to pre-Renaissance Europe. It starts briefly in a metropolitan city and quickly moves to a remote village in the mountains. There is magic in my world. The village in which this story takes place was saved from a big bad villain a decade prior by the man they refer to as the Black Knight, who now lives in that villain's massive castle. The Black Knight, despite the implication of his name, is a good guy. The locals are predominantly shepherds and plot farmers with a few basic amenities that have grown up in town over time like a blacksmith and a tavern. Their neighbors get along well with the exception of a wild tribe living on the far side of the mountains. The characters. The protagonist is Bryn Salisir, a teenage orphan whose family died when demonic worshippers burned their home and smithy to the ground. He is trained in blacksmithing, has a gift for violence, is driven by his need for vengeance, and is painfully aware of his poverty. Our other principal character is the Black Knight, a living legend who has faded into obscurity in the preceding decade. He uses masks of eccentricity and senility to disarm those who seek to fight him, as well as build the confidence of those who seek to apprentice under him. He holds the secrets to a rare, near-lost form of magic. The supporting cast is comprised of villagers, the mayor, and a few scattered pins in the ass throughout. The primary antagonist for this story is the mountain tribe threatening to break their pact and raid the village. To the characters involved, the apparent antagonist is the Black Knight's confident incompetence and inability to properly prioritize his quests or fulfill his promises. The secondary set of antagonists are a small gang of mimes, men who can steal magic traveling as bardic performers, who are watching and waiting for the opportunity to steal the Black Knight's secret skill set. The story opens with a close call. Salisir realizes that he needs real training. He takes a warped sword that he saved from his father's smithy and looks for training, but is turned away everywhere he goes. His embarrassment at his poverty mounts alongside his fear that he won't find help, until a young squire shares rumors of a knight in the mountains who trains misfits. He spends what little inheritance he has on a journey into the mountains. Halfway up, debating his course and courting total poverty, he is encouraged to continue by a young woman who has just finished her own apprenticeship. She is kind to him, doesn't judge him for his poverty or warped sword, and that kindness solidifies his resolve. He makes for the village where he finds the Black Knight haggling with a melon dealer at his cart. Covered in trophies over massive black plate, the warrior overshadows the bent old man who is trying to convince the knight that his cat is not a melon and thus not for sale. <laughs> the knight finally discards the miserable melon, tossing the cat to the side where Salisir catches it, suffering a few scratches in the process. Well cut, squire, the knight says. Let's be off. And that's all the introduction Salisir gets, leaving him bewildered and on his heels. As they walk through the village, the Black Knight is assailed by pleas for help, including a land dispute, a sellsword squatting in the mill, and the mayor's fear of growing tensions with the nearby mountain tribe. The knight vaguely acknowledges each, but he seems oblivious. Finally, a group of shepherds ask for help with cave serpents stealing their sheep. The knight promises to get right on it and walks into the valley the wrong way. The knight takes Salisir to a dam irrigating the fields, and, the, and in their misadventure, he destroys it, flooding the fields. They go to a small village nestled against a cliff and, instead of repairing rotted tresses, accidentally destroy the bridge and leave it unrepaired. All the while, Salisir struggles increasingly with how the people perceive them against his desire to learn from this powerful man. Each evening, the knight drills Salisir in strange and silly tasks and techniques with his sword. They pass caves scattered with bones, and while the knight spends the entire battle searching for his snake kit, Salisir has to defend him and kill the monsters himself. 
just in time for the shepherds to come along and give all the credit to the knight. Back in town, they're met by the farmers whose lands flooded from the broken dam, among others, and the knight sends Salisir for cider. Salisir hesitantly pulls one of his last two silver pieces out for drinks, its weight pulling against the hollow promise of the knight. He sees some mimes performing in the village tavern, one of which watches him as he carries the pints outside. The mayor's pleas continue to get lost in the noise. The mill owner gives the knight a small sack of coins as if to persuade him to help, and the knight insinuates the mayor should do likewise. At the mill, the sellsword has destroyed the interior of his quote-unquote watchtower. The knight hands him the money, approving of his handiwork, and leaves without even trying to push him out. He then has Salisir add to the precarious piles of stones along the path as exercise. They bed down for a few days in the knight's castle, and he continues to drill Salisir in meaningless and often silly tasks, while Salisir's patience wears thinner and thinner. His doubts mount with the dread of his near total poverty. The mayor arrives with a sack of gold too heavy for him to carry, which the knight straps to Salisir's back and declares they're off on a quest. Though not what the mayor expected, they're off to see the oracle. A couple of days later, they reach their final climb, a cliff atop which sits the oracle's tiny temple. The knight reaches the top first and, complaining that Salisir is taking too long, reaches down and takes the pack filled with gold. Impatient, he finally tells Salisir to take the sack back, then tosses it over the other side. Salisir scrambles to the top just in time to hear it clatter to a stop somewhere far below. We need to work on your reaction time, squire. At the temple, the oracle expects payment, and the knight looks at Salisir expectantly. He begrudgingly removes his last silver piece from his pouch and hands it over, eliciting an exuberant response from the oracle, who has never been paid so well. The knight takes her worthless advice and repays her with compliments before they move on back down the mountain. Within a few hours, they're confronted by the mimes from the tavern. The knight tries to blag his way past, but Salisir can tell he is more alert and lucid. The mimes unleash a blistering assault of magic to force the knight to use his own, which, once they have seen it, they will be able to replicate. The knight tells Salisir the final trick to unlock a sword skill, which he has learned the motions to in various silly lessons, and with a little luck, they survive. No other apprentice has ever been given these final instructions, and the knight gives him the title of Last of the Black Guard an honor which nearly overwhelms him. When they return, the village is back in order. The flood water drained to reveal ancient boundary markers, the cell sword left the mill, and repairs are underway on the bridge and dam. The mayor even praises the oracle as a mountain tribe emissary just finished making amends. After more time spent training, Salisir makes to leave, thinking the Black Knight a kindly fool, but grateful for the lessons, until he asks after the bag of gold he threw over the cliff. The Black Knight explains then how if the tribe chose to raid the village, he would have been hard-pressed to stop them. So he blocked their routes into town by flooding the main road and breaking the other bridge out. The sellsword was to start a landslide with the piled rocks should the tribe try the mountain path. The gold, he says, was to pay them off. Highly superstitious, they would see both routes blocked as eerie, and gold falling from the sky would be seen as an omen, especially if it crushed one of their own as it fell. They would then consult the oracle, who... After the generous payment and flood of compliments, would tell them the gods were with the Black Knight. In the end, odds were good they would never return to harass the people. But, Salisir says in shock, the people would never know that he did it. The knight shakes it off, saying the people deserve their peace, and he doesn't deserve any praise. The knight's willingness to suffer an endless stream of rejection in his service lends Salisir the seeds of accepting himself, apart from the views of others. He leaves with a new source of purpose to balance out his need for vengeance, and returns to that calling, but with a small portion of the hollow he carries, filled by what he comes to regard as his first true friendship. Sweet.
I got a warm, fuzzy feeling about that. That's nice. Thank you, Jay. Excellent. Now, what are you hoping to get out of the next 45 minutes or so of, of, of banter and, and brainstorming? I want my own warm, fuzzy feelings, Dave. <laughs> we can provide. I'm we- kidding. I would love to talk about, um, I guess, developing it out just to see where my blind spots are as much as anything. I feel like the story itself um, is fairly complete, but I have a feeling that as I say that, I am missing something massive. <laughs> as, as sharing the feeling of every author who has ever tried to pen the end on a story and go, did I miss something? So. <laughs> Awesome. Very cool. I think we can help you with that. And and because you asked on Twitter, you might even get a swag bag. Who knows? I want a swag bag so I bad. I know yes, you do. Please. I know you do. All right. Let's get into this then. Actually, no, we can't. We're not ready yet. Giles, we need a disclaimer. We need to cover our ass before we go a single step further. Could you, could you do the honors, sir? I can handle that. Awesome. Jay. You're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important you realize that everything, and I mean absolutely everything, said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Mike Underwood, might be complete and utter hornswoggle. This is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside. Got it? Absolutely. All right, you've agreed. We're off the hook. Life is good. All right, let's do some brainstorming. Uh, we always start with a quick once around the table just to get some first impressions and get any questions of clarification out there. And we, by by custom, always begin with our guest host. So, Michael R. Underwood, start us off, sir. What are your first impressions of Jay's story concept? And, and what questions do you have for clarification? So at first blush, this appears to be the Karate Kid meets Sherlock Holmes, and I love it <laughs> uh, because we've got a a train like a an unlikely training arc and a a situation where the protagonist or the seeming protagonist in the Black Knight is not the POV character, and a lot of what I could see happening here is um, Salazar's attempts to understand how the black knight operates and then learning at the end and then hopefully salazar takes the lesson and moves forward and then goes and has his own adventures um which i think is a solid structure it can be very tricky because a lot of readers are are trained to expect that the pov character is going to be the most important person in any given scene and so that'll be something i think you can play with um but we'll want to be wary of as we're going through uh the other thing i would ask is if maybe there is a place for a bit more of an ongoing role for for some women or female characters um, within the story, because we've got Salazar, we've got the Black Knight, we have the mayor who was either non-gendered or, or non-coded, and the Oracle seems to play a part, but a fairly small one. Um, I think there are some questions we can ask about the characters we already have, and seeing if maybe there's a way to reinterpret them to make them even richer, or to kind of um, take familiar figures and cast them or inhabit them in a different fashion, whether that's um, swapping genders or changing their backgrounds or other kinds of elements of characterization. Because I think the basic structure here is very familiar to a fantasy reader. Mm-hmm. And the way that you're implementing it is interesting in and of itself. But there may be a way to keep that familiarity while taking it even farther um, in terms of really fun characterization. Yeah. Yeah, 
Agreed. Agreed. Excellent first impressions. Excellent first notes. And I think that's going to lead into a, a very nice discussion. I'm, I put some pins in a few of those points to return and cycle back onto. Giles, what about you, sir? First impressions and any questions for, for Master Swanson? Well, my first impressions, I'd, ha- I'd have to agree with Mike. Uh, it does seem like a fun and familiar story and not in a bad way. Um, again, I do like the Karate Kid kind of uh, odd tasks leading to actual training in, a, in an unexpected way. My biggest question overall is I don't see, based on the story arc that you were talking about, how that fits in with the theme that you have. And I'd like to see some more clarification on how the theme meshes with the story itself. Yeah, I noticed that too. I noticed. I actually made a note of that as as we were as we were going through. Uh, uh, so yeah, and and Jay, do you want to do you want to touch on that at all? As far as just a, a quick response in terms of how the story uh, affirms the theme of accepting oneself in the face of challenges. Yeah, I think that a lot of it comes down to because the magic itself. This is something we talked about once before, but the magic itself is something that kind of plays a minor role, and I think that the training itself is what's important in the idea that uh, he's making him do really silly tasks and he's making him do things that make him uncomfortable and put him in an odd spot. So in every situation where they're in front of people and they're completing some ridiculous quest that goes wrong, the Black Knight's consistently challenging him to face those inner demons of of, uh, acceptance in the face of other people, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Okay. okay, and I, and I think there's I think there's ways to affirm that in other ways as well. We yeah, can explore sure. that. We can explore that. It seems like a, a difference between perceiving the 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 Black Knight as like oh he's amazing and he's wonderful and like an exterior definition of self where you're defined by the world around you and the Black Knight refutes that and maybe helps Salazar find meaning and definition internally instead of externally. Is that a solid read? Absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 kind of what I'm going for. And that's a big part of it because the character of the Black Knight is somebody who's effectively uses those tools. Like I, I put in the original thing, too, that he still has his, he's very much a brilliant person. He still has his wits. But his history comes from a place where he's this legend that kind of ends up adopting the eccentricity and the senility as tools, as ways of disarming people and as ways of teaching people, especially with um social anxieties and, and difficulties with themselves to accept him and then be able to reflect back and accept themselves. So that's, that's a tool set that he uses for sure. Cool. And the, the training that the, the knight gives Salazar, is that all combat oriented or is it uh, training that's weird social circumstances or is it more like um, inputting him into these, these uncomfortable situations? That's the social training. Is there a, a social angle to the weird karate kid stuff as well? Yeah, so the, well, what I had so far, and this is, it'd be really great to actually get some input on that because what I have so far are things like when they go to take care of the bridge, they show up and the villagers don't even ask him to help with the bridge. But he's like, oh, your bridge is in trouble. Obviously, I'll help. And then goes and, and just has this really awkward inter- interaction with the people where he's seeing things that they're not seeing and then makes Salisir help him hack the rot out of these tresses kind of a thing. Um, and the whole process is, is very much like he's training him, but it, he's putting them in those awkward social situations time and time again. Okay. Very cool. Well, and, and for myself, Jay, um, I, I, I will echo what has been said here. I, you, we recognize this story foundation, this story structure, and I agree. I enjoy it as well. And, and I think you've, you've sketched out a, a very accurate uh, uh, 
not it's not an homage it's not it's 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 a, a an embodiment of that structure of that of that type of story uh and that's always fun and a delight i kind of got this uh combination uh, uh drunken monkey uh, uh meets don quixote uh <laughs> kind of vibe off of it which which, which was actually kind of cool um so uh, yeah much much love for what we're working with here i will also echo Giles's observation about the linking of the theme more emphatically, uh, and that kind of leads to an exploration. The, the question that I have is, who's the real protagonist uh, uh, in this story? Because uh, you presented Salazar as the protagonist, but he, his, his arc is, is fairly narrow. Uh, uh, he just kind of does what he's told uh, until he gets that final piece, and it's like, oh crap! I've been learning all this time. Uh, we don't have a real crisis point for him. We don't have a, a darkest hour uh, through which he must somehow persevere. And again, I, we don't need to use the, the hero cycle as a, a, a format or a structure, um, and that may not be appropriate for this. But uh, uh, there, there is some opportunity, I think, for. Uh, a deepening of the character evolutions, both of the Black Knight and of Salazar through this. I did want to ask, dude, why mimes? Holy crap, why mimes? You're killing me here. <laughs> That's Well, I don't imagine them being the white-painted white uh, face with the black slits over their eyes so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the berets and stuff. I use the, so in my world, the greater sense of my world, mimes are, mimes are just like traveling bardic performers who are kind of jacks of all trades in that they can do kind of anything and everything a performer would ever. And so they go out into remote regions and they're able to kind of perform people okay. for people in a way they've never seen before. And that also is a great um, link to these guys. And they're not the only ones uh, who are mimics and are able to see and mimic magic and they use that the, the the bardic passport to get in to you know behind okay. closed doors and so forth. Then then I would suggest just a suggestion uh, yeah. uh, if you are going to use the term mimes uh, that you establish what they are before you use it uh, because there's going to be a lot of baggage that your reader is going to instantly impose on those yeah. characters and they'll never see anything but white face and black isolates. Yep. Uh, so, so caution, cautionary flag there. All right, that's that's all I really got to start off with. I have some things I want to explore, but Michael, start us off here. Where do you want to begin with this brainstorm? I think there's actually a cool way of jumping right from the mimes and the mimics and the way that the magic works, you know, uh, into something that will let us strengthen all of these character arcs, okay. because. Uh, the Black Knight is saying, do this thing or do what I do. And Salazar is mimicking without question, ah, or he's nice. kind of following as an apprentice. And he's trying specifically to imprint and to echo a character who's come before. He's externally defining himself, or he's drawing definition from outside. And we have the mimics who are trying to redefine themselves with greater knowledge by confronting the Black Knight and forcing him to use this power. The thing I would then ask is, what's the Black Knight's arc for this narrative? Because even if he's not the protagonist, um, I think some kind of attitude change for the Black Knight could be useful. We do have the model of things like um, the Sherlock Holmes stories, where Holmes doesn't really change so much as a, char uh, as a character in the story. It's more like, go, 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 go. Here's everything. I already figured it all out. And that works better when 
when that is that character isn't the protagonist. But there's so much of this echoing and external versus internal definition that I think we can really dig into, and that may give some great kind of backbone or through line to the story in a way that resonates with character arc. Yeah, very much so. Though I I hadn't realized, but you're right. The mimics are a perfect metaphor for Salazar's issue and maybe the Black Knights as well, because clearly he has gone the exact opposite route. Uh, He defies convention. He's not trying to mimic or integrate or or, uh, adopt the social graces that are expected of someone of his stature. He's playing the fop and the buffoon. He's putting on a mask, so I guess that could be uh, uh, something... Yeah, that might be something to explore. The the notion of masks and mimicry, that's a recurring theme. I like that, Michael. I think that's got legs. Giles, what do you think? I kind of like it, too. Um, it, it made me think of a, an idea I had heard a few years ago about how people who choose to be happy, even when they don't necessarily feel happy, tend to actually feel happy more regularly because they're pretending to be happy but in a good way mm-hmm. and not taking out their misery on other people. Fake it till so, you make and, it. Yeah, yeah the, yeah, the and external those are, practice leads to an internal change. Right, and there's the literally mirror neurons. That's how we describe it. If, you are, if you're mirror, mirroring the behavior or the facial structure or the, the body language of someone that you're, you're trying to sync yourself up with. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and 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 that's something that I think that that, that the readers would be able to resonate to because we we all are aware of that, especially Jay. It's presented in such a way that you know, and we could do it from Salazar since we're in his head uh, throughout the story. That 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 dawning realization of uh, of adoption of un- almost unconscious mirroring uh, uh, that maybe scares him. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's one of his crisis points is, you know, with every apprenticeship, there's that turning point where you need to abandon what you were in this case, a vengeance seeker in, in Salazar's case, and realize that as you move forward, uh, uh, it's going to change you. And that can be a very terrifying thing. What I'd like to see in the story is some glimpse of what pushed the black Knight into this this foppish role, this this role of clown and and uh, uh, sort of oh God, there was that movie Ink. I don't know if you guys saw that, but there was a character in Ink that literally just kind of went around and did shit, uh, uh, and he'd, he'd like knock over a can, and it would set aside this cascade of events that would create a car crash at exactly the right time. And I kind of get that vibe from him. Obviously, he's he's not like in tune with the universe. He's he's just strategizing brilliantly. Uh, uh, but there's that that sense of something happened that pushed him into this very different road. What do you guys think of finding out what that is for the Black Knight? Would that give a little more body and oomph to to the story overall? Yeah, I think some kind of greater insight about the Black Knight for Salazar beyond the it's all an act, something that goes into the why. Um, what I would suggest, what I would propose to Jay is, what if part of the reason that the Black Knight runs away from the way that others define them is that the Black Knight has always been playing a role even when they became the Black Knight. Ooh. Whether this is that the Black Knight has always been a woman and d- participated in the kind of the narrative tradition of cut your hair, pose as a boy, 
and that that's part of that kind of public face, private face, Ooh. or that the Black Knight is non-binary, if that's a thing in your universe, because it makes sense that, that, that there would be some people who are like that, or that there's some other point of internal definition of difference that is compensated for or masked through some kind of presentation. I like that. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, well, actually, that's kind of the the reason that I was like, uh, I would I'd actually like to know how much you guys think would be important specifically for this story alone, because that's kind of the the trilogy that this is essentially a, a preclusion to is that entire story of the Black Knight playing that role. And like the first the first story is his like uh, rise from being, you know, a kid to the legendary status that he is. And the whole book is the ideal is that it's going to be about imposter syndrome. Okay. So this, so this story then is a question mark planted in the reader's mind to motivate them to read up on more about the black Knight. That'd be kind of the goal. Yeah. It's fulfilling that role. And it's also Salisir is the principal mystery character in into the Nanton. And so this is giving you some insight into him. If you're following that story as well. Okay. That's good to know. That's, that's good to know. We, I, we, we can't let that, otherwise we'll be exploring into the Nanton in this. And that's in the context of this story, there are going to be readers who are reading this without having any of that back lore. Of course, yeah. So, so we, need to, we need to work with this in isolation. But I can still see you know, a, a hint that there is something. Uh, uh, a moment, a crisis, a, a startling revelation. Where, as, as Michael pointed out, that the the mask, the, the 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 role that the Black Knight has adopted, is called into question, or the mask slips. And we don't need to know all the details. I guess that that's not necessary. But getting a glimpse of the truth behind would probably enhance the question even more. God, we saw a glimpse of who this person really is. How did they get this way? Bam! And we don't know unless right. we read the other stories. Yeah, and depending on how you want the reader to exit the story, one version of that might be Salazar making an assertion about the Black Knight based on what they've seen that could be wrong and takes that lesson, that misreading of who the Black Knight is and why, mm. and that puts them onto the sto- that helps put them on the trajectory that takes them into later stories. Yeah. Jay, what do you think? Is that gonna, would that uh, uh, provide a good launch point, do you think? Absolutely. I like the idea of him taking a misreading of the, the lesson. For me, the, the moment that he slips is when the mimes attack. Like he, that, and I tried to put that into the pitch, but he actually speaks lucidly and gives like clear instructions quickly. And you see, oh, he's completely different in this moment and he's completely capable. And so that for me, that was that slip. Is that, is that what you're talking about or is there something else that I'm missing? I think we need more. I, I think we need, I think the heat of battle is one thing, uh, uh, and and that raises the question, but then there needs to be a scene afterwards where Salazar says, what the hell was that? Right. And and that's the whole end piece where he explains to Salazar exactly what he was planning the whole time. No, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. I see two climaxes in this story, and they come Mm -hmm. one right after the other, which can be tricky structurally, um, because there's the confrontation with the mimes, which seems like it's the the climax of the Salisar training arc of everything comes together because this is why this all matters. But then you have the climax for the village where the Black Knight's other plan is revealed because the the plans are kind of together, but they're kind of apart. 
And I would, I would definitely want to know what the emotional beats before and after each of those climaxes are. You know, maybe this is something where the lucid instructions come as the Black Knight realizes that they can't evade the mimes mm -hmm. so that it's not in the midst of the battle, it's leading up to it. Or to make sure to have that um, scene sequel emotional moment, as, as uh, Dave suggests, between the mime confrontation and the revelation at, in the town. Yeah, Some, something where... Uh, 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 you know, and if if I were in Salazar, I'm sorry, projecting myself into your story, Jay. So it's a good, it's a good sign. <laughs> if I was Salazar and I was, you know, following this guy for weeks and weeks and weeks, and all of a sudden everything changed in the middle of battle, as soon as the battle's over, we're having a talk. Yeah. So we we're we're gonna figure out what's going on, and 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 that's the other thing. Actually, I have other ideas, but I want to uh, let's let's put a pin in this for now because I think we've got some good. Uh, uh, concepts as far as the Black Knights arc and what we want to do with that, uh, Giles. Where do you want to dig in? What's what's your what's the meat on this bone for you? I, I just made that up right now. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> I'm going to use that again. I'd like to dive in a little bit more on why Salisir is well uh, willing to put up with so much BS while he's going through this arc. Um, it, it feels a little contrived for him to just agree with everything that the Black Knight is having him do. And I like to see a little bit more motivation, maybe some kind of results that he can latch onto that make him convinced that, okay, all of these dumb chores are actually working. Actually, I was you know, take riffing on that, Giles. I was thinking, we need a point where, where Salazar says, screw this. I'm done. I This is this is crazy. And, and have, and, and again, putting us in that situation then how does he come back and and i'm not sure how that would happen uh, uh but there needs to be some sort of crisis of faith on the part of salazar i was wondering uh again riffing on your idea giles what if the mimes play a more substantial role because in the narrative they're they're there when they get cider and then boom they attack and we don't know why uh, they got magic. Holy crap, there's magic. Uh, but this is the first time we've seen magic. So uh, my suggestion would be then have the mimes be more uh, uh, the dark mirror for Salazar and perhaps even have them, you know, lure him and tempt him away from the Dark Knight. Maybe there's a betrayal and maybe this attack uh, uh, on, on the part of the mimes was actually something that, that Salazar uh, uh either unwittingly or wittingly orchestrated. Uh, uh, and and you know, that's kind of making it a darker tale than, than the lighthearted romp that you presented it. Uh, I'm not sure. What, what did you have, Michael? Yeah, actually, I was uh, going along the same lines. What I would propose as an extra layer to the story to either be revealed along the way so that there's, um, there's a, a difference between what the readers know and what the Dark Knight knows, or as another... Um, reveal because you're already in a Sherlock Holmesian style. Here's how this all, here's how everything that came before is different kind of structure in the Knights reveal. What if the mimes approached Salisar and said, we're going to give you the money or we're going to give you the means to ex extract your revenge. You go to this knight, you can learn his secrets. And then if you know about his magic and you bring it to us or you set it up so that we can get this magic, we'll give you everything you need for your revenge. That's and then awesome. Yeah, then along the way, as Salazar is frustrated and frustrated and frustrated, he has one conception of the Black Knight. 
And then in that confrontation, in the moment that he has betrayed his kind of erstwhile eccentric mentor, everything comes together and that's his crisis point. Yes. That's awesome. So through the whole story, then he's a double agent. He's he's going along because he's an agent of the mimes. And and along the way, the knights goodness and, you know, eccentricities certainly are frustrating. But there's that subtle core of truth underneath that Salazar responds to. And then, yeah, then that crisis point is not only an action crisis point, but a character crisis point as well. That's potent right. mojo. That's because awesome. if if it's if it's accept yourself when the world rejects you. Then the mimes come to him and said, and, and say basically the you know the world has rejected you. We will make you different. We're going to make you like us. We're going to we're going to bring you into the system that is entirely externally de- defined. That you use the you use the environment around you against it. And the knight then per, uh, per kind of forwards a system that's rejecting external definition. And as Salazar goes through, goes along, like revenge is an internal motivation, but if it's presented or carried out in a way at the beginning of the story where it's like Salazar needs also needs some kind of validation socially, um, because he's been thwarted in his, his desire for belonging to a certain extent as a, as an apprentice, the mimes offer him one type of belonging. And then the knight in it, in his own weird way presents another form, but it doesn't become evident until all the pieces connect because then Salazar can put the pieces together in one way. And then the knight says, and here's how the pieces all fit together in a different way. Yeah. It kind of works as a great exploration of why people join the counterculture or join, join a subculture or just try and figure out who they're going to be and learn to be okay with who they are and just go ahead and do that. It's, it's a great, um, trifecta really of cultural, uh, commentary. Yeah, cultural commentary. That's the word I was looking That's, for, Dave. Yeah, Thank I'm, you. I mean, I'm here for you, brother. <laughs> well, and the cool thing about that is is that the mimes ideology is is basically it leaves you hollow. You're adopting, you're defining yourself by externals, and there's nothing in the middle. And the knight is the exact antithesis of that. The knight says, fuck everything else. This is who I am, and I'm not trying to be anything else. And in his core, he is truth. And and that strength will shine through in that moment. That's that's potent storytelling juice right there, people. I like that. Jay, what do you think? I love it. That's really good. That's exactly what I was missing because I felt like uh, I felt like I there I had I had motivations. I was gonna like tell you what was going on, but I'm just gonna go ahead and scrap pretty much all of it and write Mike's <laughs> book instead. So the yes. the question I would ask to the group is do we want that to be tension that's held over the knight's head where we as the reader know this going in or is this another reveal where there's a salazar side reveal that's um introduced either leading into or in the in the moment of the mimes confrontation or is it um something that we know all along i well let me let me take an oblique angle at that uh uh, yeah yeah i i kind of like the idea of the assumption that the knight knows all along that Salazar has been approached by the mimes and is trying yeah. to lure him out. Right? Because he's you know he's freaking Obi-Wan. He's 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 Sherlock Holmes. He knew all of this well in advance because he can see things no one else can see. He's he's drank from the six demon bag. Uh so um so having that be there and and not overtly tipping off the the readers to it, but uh letting that be a part of that 
story progression, at least in your mind, Jay, as you write it, I think is important. Um, Michael, what did you mean about as far as hanging over the knight's head? Is that you mean like the reader's concern for the knight knowing he's going to be be, be betrayed? Right, where okay, we yeah. as the reader know that Salazar is a double agent, but we think the knight doesn't know or that the knight doesn't know, where yeah. it's like a question of dramatic irony, where it's like, no, of course you can't open the door because there's, you know, a trap with a shotgun behind it. That kind of tension, because that could help I- intensify the reader's um, investment in the narrative if they know that there's another shoe that's about to drop. Right. Um, and part of that's a structural question, because you already have a, aha, um, Sherlock Holmes style reveal in the Black Knight's plan. And because that's so deferred to the end, it's a structural question where it's really hard for me to to think about stories that only work or most work when defined from the back to the fore. Because yeah. going through the first time as a reader, it needs to be a satisfying experience. If something only comes together at the very end, I think that can be structurally very difficult. Yeah. So I would think about who knows what and when and are they right? So the question then that you're posing, Michael, is what what can we infuse in the front end of the story to keep the reader engaged and and invested so they make it to the end and the big awesome reveal? And, oh, my God, it was so much more than I thought it was. Right. I think one version that can be solid is if we know that Salazar is going to betray the night. Yes. But we don't necessarily know that Salazar is going to have this crisis moment and change sides. And then there can be yet another surprise, which too many surprises and too many twists can be tricky. So I would I'd investigate that um, probably with beta readers. Uh, Jay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder, though, too, then if it's possible to. Well, I know it's possible, but I, the way that I'm leaning in this discussion would be that Salisir is approached and doesn't give them a clear answer. And they say, hey, man, if you want to do it, you know where to find us kind of a thing. And OK. It's that kind of a we follow along with the tension of will he or won't he, and he right. he he doesn't know himself. Like he goes back and forth because one of the great tensions for him is his poverty, is that desire for vengeance. So I think that that yeah. could propel the whole story. Yeah, that can also work in really well with that that big blow up scene of well, I don't understand this crazy training routine. Then there's his motivation to kind of like the everlasting gobstopper in uh, Willy Wonka. It's his opportunity to say, well, screw this, I'm out. I I already have another option. I'm going to go talk to the mimes again. Yeah, if we're getting um, Salazar's emotional journey along the way because we're with him, if it's close enough POV-wise, that I think will really help be a, uh, a tension engine because he's not just letting the stuff that the Black Knight does go uncommented on. Even if he's not directly responding to the knight, he's going through, he's churning, he's having turmoil, even if a lot of it is like, screw this guy, like, why should I, you know, maybe the mimes are right. You know, I could make a world, I could make a life that way. If we see that tension with him, that really can help us stay invested. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we, at the very beginning of the story, there's that moment where the, the young female apprentice who has now gone through the training comes to him and says, yeah, he's good. Just, just do what he says. Don't ask questions. If, if we have a similar moment, just moments beats later where, you know, Salazar is approached by the mimes because they see him, you know, eyeballing, talking to the to the young knight and eyeballing the black knight saying, hey, you're going to go talk to the guy. Now, look, here's the situation. He's crazy, but he knows this magic and uh, we need this. And, and you look like you're down. You're like, I can give you money, swords, power, you know, magic, whatever you want to to do, whatever you want to do. Have Salazar approached the knight. No, no. And, and so then Salazar 
is we don't know what Salazar's decided yet. He has these two uh, uh, iconic choices of the night is good or the night is insane. The night is good doesn't get me anything. These guys are promising me stuff. So there's that constant friction. And with each event, we can have these this teeter-totter moment where Salazar's going to go this way and then he's going to go that way. That can't be sustained for too long, but then I don't think it has to be. I think that that brings him to that crisis moment where maybe he, maybe he finally... I, it, it forces him to make a decision even at the end when the mimes show up and they're like, well, and he has to decide, do I side with these guys or do I side with this guy? Because well, there's no, there's and, no way out. And I could see a moment during that fight, you know, where, where, you know, Salazar has been going through all this stuff. And you said that the knight gives him that final piece. Well, if he, if the knight gives him the final piece of that sword stroke while Salazar is against him, that would be a moment of clarity. It's like, wait a minute. He just unlocked this super secret sword technique for me, and I'm trying to kill him. What does he want? And and that spiral of of confusion is often a wonderful fertile ground for inspiration and revelation, which could then yeah. fuel the, the the emotional change. That could be really good because the, you asked earlier his motivation, and and part of the motivation is that he's he whether or not he'll admit it, he's really seeking for a father figure. Um, his dad was a jerk and died in a fire when he was young, and that's one of the big things that he's seeking. So, and that's what's so important to him as a person. At the end, is that definition of being like, "I'm entrusting you with this, with this incredible power that like is mine to give and is nobody else's." And so, for him, that's a defining part of his arc as a character that spans beyond this book. And so, I think that that could be really important for him. And I love actually, Dave, what you're saying there because for him, then it could be well fine, screw it. Like I need, I, these guys are giving me something that I need. And this guy, you know, I love him after all this nonsense, but I, I need to have my vengeance. And then with that kind of key, like you're saying, unlocks that part of his heart where it's like, oh, that he's everything that I wanted. And then he has to desperately work hard to try and actually reverse his revenge or uh, his betrayal. Right. And I'm reminded of, um, this is from Game of Thrones, the Song of Ice and Fire series. So readers, if you don't want spoilers, go la la la. Um, <laughs> the, the fight between Jon Snow and Corrin Halfhand. When, yes. Um, Jay, have you read that? Yeah. So that moment where this mentor figure says, okay, this is the only way you're going to survive is by killing me. That mm. type of emotional intensity where there's a shift and where we feel and we're with Jon Snow as he's really torn in that moment, that I think is the type of emotional explosion that we're shooting for in that kind of, in that scene. Yeah, very much so. And at the end, I would almost like it to be, you know, after it's, it's all over and the mimes are gone or dead or banished or whatever. Uh, uh, it's like, Holy crap. You, you gave me, you gave me this thing, this, this wonderful thing and have the black Knight say, it's got nothing to do with you, boy. I, I'm the last person that knows this. It was my duty to give it on to someone else. You just happen to be the person in the path. And and maybe kind of backpedal some of that uh, uh, very obvious father figure revelation and temper it with some truth that maybe taints it just a little bit, not enough to diminish its value, but illustrates that this isn't all puppies and rainbows and unicorns, that there was a very pragmatic side to this. And it, but that doesn't diminish the revelation that he had. Or maybe there's, there's room in the denouement to resolve that. I don't know. I don't know. 
But yeah, this 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 has got this has got legs. This has got legs. Um, we're we're running out of time, guys. Jay, is there anything else you wanted us to dig into real quick before we dive into that that final once around the table? Uh, I'm sure there will be plenty of things tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> For now, your brain is full. Your heart is spinning. I get taking it. lots of notes, you guys. You're, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's go ahead and give you a few more notes. Let's let's dock a few more things on the on the post-it whiteboard for this particular story. Let's let's go down to this once 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 more around the table. Uh, uh, give Jay some final thoughts, some ideas, some inspirations. Anything you didn't get a chance maybe to put out it during the workshop proper or any other inspirations you have. S- fill his pockets with literary gold so he can go off and write this bad boy. Michael, we'll start with you, sir. Final thoughts for Jay. Sure. Um, if you don't already have it, I would consider how that appre- that apprentice that Salazar talks to can come back in the story. Mm. Ideally within this story, but possibly later on, maybe this is a character you've already thought about. But narrative economy, I think, can be a very powerful thing, whether that's, oh, that apprentice is actually the oracle, uh, or that the apprentice comes back later, either in the last scene or is relevant somehow or Salazar kind of carries her words with him in some yeah, fashion yeah. that she, she interacts with him in a way that resonates and stays with him and or along an axis he didn't expect is one. The other one that I would ask is, is there a way? And if so, how maybe explore the way that this wild tribe can fit into your thematic um, wheelhouse of being externally defined versus internally defined. You know, if, if this wild tribe, you know, they're really, you know, they're, they're their own people. Everybody has their own agenda. Everybody's a hero of their own story. If there's a, a way to, to build that empathy where there's maybe a xenophobia from the village and then part of the revelation toward the end is like these people just have their own way. It seems like you're already kind of going that way. So maybe it's something you can further unpack where everything resonates. And the more parts of the story I think that you can make um, resonate and very much so in the musical fashion with your main thematic arc. I think the more that the reader is going to come out of the story going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. That that would be a cohesive uh, uh, aspect that yeah would would definitely close the close the deal for me. Giles, what about you? Final thoughts for Jay? My big final thoughts are: it sounds like a very intriguing story, and like it's going to be a lot of fun. And there's some really cool tropey aspects to it so my my biggest thought is some final advice on as you're going through this walk a very fine line to watch uh, make sure you're not moralizing and any of the events that come along in this plot don't come across as deus ex machina Uh, you have something great that you can work with here so just keep an eye out as you build those building blocks to watch how everything fits together so it's smooth and maybe try and break away from some of the classic tropes that you're working with, twist them around a little bit. And go, go organic with some of the, some of the progressions. Yeah. I can mm-hmm. absolutely yeah, take see it, that. As you're writing, let it flow. And uh, if it goes a di- different direction, kind of play with that and don't try and force people back into your outline. Yep. Yep. Agreed. And I'm going to kind of riff on what Giles was saying. Um, one of the things that, that struck me about this, this narrative as it's laid out, Jay, is uh, there are these, these, these moments of, of revelation. The, there's an oracle uh, and there are these mimes and they attack because they got magic. And there's the this and there's the, 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 the knights got this magic and thing. And 
they they appear in the context of these events without a lot of support beforehand. And I realize with it with a pitch, you do, you can't layer in all the, the the support and and backstory that you would weave into the story. But I would make sure that the understanding that the knight has this magic is relevant and important and comes out in some way. Uh, maybe Salazar is befuddled. Why don't, if there's this tribe, why don't you just use that magic? And, and you know, we can get this sort of blustery, sort of fizzbin kind of, well, that'd be bad because bad things happen when you use the magic or whatever. Uh, uh, but uh, supporting the notion of who these mimes are and how their magic works and how their lifestyle works. Uh, uh, weaving, as Michael was saying, the, the the cultural authenticity of all of these elements that are so critical to this final climax, making sure that you're building an authentic world so that when they come up, when they become important, the reader isn't blindsided by them, but rather goes, oh, right, the magic, I remember that, and, and work it that way. Uh, so that you provide a good foundation for these wonderful character developments and revelations that we're working on. So, awesome. Very cool. Uh, this is great. Now, Jay, here's the rules of the roundtable, man. As you well know, uh, uh, you go off, you write this bad boy. You, you, you know, put it up as a, a real-time fantasy blog. Uh, you cut a deal with a, a big publishing company or just put it up as a, a PDF on your website. We don't care. As long as the story's out there in the world and your vision is seeding someone else's imagination, you come back, you let us know, and we will knight you. In fact, we'll bring in the Black Knight, and we'll have the Black Knight knight you and make you a knight of the round table podcast. Dude, you down with that? Absolutely. Well, and, and we got to get that voice actor that you're going to have to do the vo- vocals, because I know you're going to have vocals for this. We'll get that voice actor in for the Black Knight, and we'll bring him in. That would be awesome. I know Dennis would love to do it, yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Awesome. Jay Swanson, man, you, you set a beautiful table uh, uh, for a very, very informed and informing in, uh, discussion, man. This was a great brainstorm. Thank you for having the cajones to step up and, and sharing your story with us, man. We appreciate it. Anytime. Anytime? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I feel like anytime I, if I ever want to write a story, if I bring it to you, Dave, it will always leave 10 times stronger. <laughs> I have lots and lots of help. So awesome. Very cool. We'll write this one and then we'll bring you back. Okay. Sounds good. Awesome. And, and much of the help that I have in this is, is the esteemed guest hosts that I am so wise to bring on to the show because I'm not sure I could carry this myself. Michael Underwood, sir, as, as always, you bring your, your academic and scholastic influence along with your, your marketing wisdom and your, your sheer storyteller awesomeness to the discussion in so many wonderful ways. Thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. Well, I'm very happy to bring my uh, my neo-structuralist hat in to try to to make some things go. I'm really excited about where this um, may lead, Jay, so please do keep us updated. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I want to know what a neo-structuralist hat looks like. That that just conjured a visual for me of, of warped planes and twisted dimensional intersections on your head, which was kind of cool. <laughs> Giles Hash, my, my podcasting brother from the Beyond the Trope podcast and now co-host with me here on the roundtable. Uh, dude, this was a blast. I would very much like it if we could do this again. Would you be cool with that? 
Absolutely. Just keep in touch. Oh, dude, it shall be so. It shall be so. Thank you, man. This this was awesome. And uh, uh, you have proven your brainstorming chops, dude. I appreciate it. <laughs> I had a blast. I mean, it's absolutely fun to be here, whether it's having my stuff workshopped or uh, helping other people workshop. It is fun to workshop other people's stuff, isn't it? it there's, it's, it's, there's, there's still the stakes of doing a good job, but it's not your baby. So you can, you can play and explore and we all discover stuff, which is why we do this. And as long as we're on that topic friends thank you uh thank you for tuning in for clicking the play button because as giles just pointed out we do this so that everybody can have some fun and learn some stuff about the story craft and by you clicking that play button and joining us for this ride you you fulfill our mandate so thank you for that that's awesome if you're loving it if you're feeling the the joy in your heart uh, uh feel free to to spread the word about the round table there are not enough people that know about the round table you just experienced the awesomeness clearly other people need to be caught by the spark of the round table and and set a flame, uh, a creative flame in their hearts to go out and create cool stories. So spread the word, share a Facebook post, tweet about us, all of that good stuff. And as always, much gratitude to those of you who have been taking up that noble cause is deeply appreciated. And holy crap, I am I am now lighting the celebratory cigarette at the end of this episode. I am spent. Uh, we're all a little brain numb right now. But guys, in seven days... Like a phoenix from the ashes, baby, we are going to be back. We're going to have another fabulous guest host pouring wisdom into our ears, another courageous guest writer striding boldly to the writer's chair, more roundtable awesomeness spilling into your ears absolutely free of charge. Uh, but that's seven days, and I know that's a long time. I, would, I, I, I acknowledge that freely. Giles, dude, what can our listeners do so those seven days just just fly by. Go and write. Yes, absolutely. Share your stories with the world. Let your imagination kindle someone else's. That is, I think, one of the greatest gifts a writer can give to the world. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the holy crap, the top shelf, blue label goodness. And I promise you, friends, if you look for it, you will find it. We'll see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.